You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. Wow, Colossians chapter 3, uh, 8 through to 14, one of my favourite passages of the Bible because it has one of the great promises of the Bible and, and that is that God is making you into a new thing. One of the great promises of the Bible we'll, we'll see for this as we've been looking through this series, God's New Thing, is that God is making a new you. The great promise, the benchmark that Colossians set for us is that uh, effectively God can transform you into the sort of person where the character and the deeds of Jesus himself will naturally flow from who you are. Now, as we try and reconcile that and break it down, we recognise that there's, there's a bit of a reality to, I know at least in my life, to who I am and who the life of Jesus is. I guess the question we have is how do we reconcile that? Uh, and the way that I do is I, I say, I have said before, that Christians are like dorky teenagers. Believe it or not, I was a dorky teenager. Uh, I had uh, everything was out of proportion. My hands were too big for my body. My feet were too big for my body. I, I I was this height in year eight, so I was the biggest kid in school in year eight, and then I was the smallest kid in school by year twelve. Uh, everything was, my, my nose was big. Uh, it's still big, but uh, you know, it, I was just I was out of proportion. You know what dorky teenagers are like, right? They're just out of proportion. And what do you say as their parent or as their auntie, their uncle, or their grandparent? Look, it's okay, love. You you're just growing into your potential. <laughs> uh, that's that's how I got through my teenage. I was just growing into my potential for adulthood, and that is the truth about every Christian. When we come to reconcile this difference between the life and the promise that we have in this passage today and who we really are right now. That we're growing into our potential. You see, isn't it possible that someone has, has been a Christian for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and they are just still just as angry and they're still just as enraged and still just as slanderous as this passage says? And why, why is that? Well, it's like saying a, a, a Toyota Corolla doesn't become a Porsche just by sitting in the garage. In the same way, a Christian doesn't move into the likeness of Jesus Christ just by sitting in church. What it means for you and what it means for me this morning is that there is an activity, there is a responsibility for each and every one of us to move into the activity of Christ-likeness. The promise is you could be a Porsche this morning. And a Christian growth, there is a, a change dynamic, an active process by which God transforms you with your partnership with him and the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we'll see that that dynamic is a, it's a two-stroke engine. We'll get to that in a second, but it's a two-stroke engine. It's a whippersnipper engine for change. But why is change so hard to deal with in the first place? And I think it's because there is a, there's a base note underneath this passage. I don't know if you know what I mean. Mikey Thomas would know what I mean by a bass note. But if you, when you go to see uh, the Sydney Symphony Orchestra or you see the wonderful giant pipe organ in the town hall, have you ever noticed when, when it really hits the bass note, the bass note sets the key of the entire piece of music and yet it's so deep uh, that you can't even hear it. But you can see in the town hall when the windows are rattling, you know it's present. <laughs> that, that's what a good bass note is. You, you can't hear it, but... Its mere presence just reverberates and there is a base note in this passage and that base note is righteousness. 
I say it's based on because you don't see the word righteousness turn up in from Colossians uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through to 14 that we've read. You don't see it pop up. It's a base note, but it, it sets the tone of the entire passage that Paul is talking about here. What do I mean? Uh, here's what I think of when I think of righteousness. I mean, when I think of righteousness, I think, I think of starched shirts. I think of holy men and holy women. I think of good deeds. I think of hoity-toities and, and straight people, right? That's, that's a righteous person is like that. But the, the, the opposite of righteousness is not evil or bad deeds. The opposite of righteousness is rejection. And so therefore what, what that means backwards is that righteousness means to be accepted. I'll put it this way. Uh, in the spirit of openness and transparency amongst all the congregations, I'm going to share with you what I shared with the night congregation a couple of weeks back. Uh, but when I was in my dorky teenage years, uh, I heard that my favourite jazz band, Directions in Groove, were uh, heading to the basement, uh, the premier bass club down there at Circular Quay. And I, I've been wanting to see these guys live uh, for years and years, and I heard they were playing there. And so uh, Dad agreed that he would take me down. There was one problem, that is um, I was under the age of 18, of course, and it's an over-18s venue, and I'm thinking there's no way that I could possibly get in. Uh, until I had this really great idea, I thought I would go and take my stepmother's, uh, what's, the, what's those pencils, hails that you, uh, is it eyeliner or something? What? Oh, I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right, it's eyeliner. It's eyeliner. I, I took her eyeliner and I proceeded to meticulously for two to three hours that afternoon draw myself a beard on my face. <laughs> And it was, it was a beautiful thing. By the time I was done, I was just one big bushy amount of black gunk coming out of my chin. And, and I walked up uh, to the bouncer there and, and thinking that in the nighttime air that he wouldn't see anything different. And I, I, I walked up and I'm standing there at the door just thinking that I was going to be ushered straight in. And I, I, looking back on it, I can always see the half smirk on his face as he realised what was going on here. And he said, uh, oh, excuse me, sir. I thought that was quite a compliment, the dorky teenager that I was. Uh, could I see your ID, please? And then at that point, I thought, it's all over. <laughs> I'm never getting into this place. We, we all draw beards, don't we? And whether you're a guy or a girl, we, we all draw beards on our face. I hope we, we all do. I'm just trying to feel a bit better. But <laughs> we all draw beards on our faces. Uh, you do it when you're going for a job. You draw a beard. It's called a resume, and you you pump it up and you hype it up, and and you see the interviewers pour over it, and you pray and you hope uh, that your resume will be deemed righteous. It will be deemed acceptable. You do it in. You draw beards in relationships. Uh, guys f- mysteriously get incredibly romantic in the first couple of months of relationship. They do things that they would never ordinarily uh, ordinarily do in the hope that they would be deemed righteous. Or acceptable. Uh, politicians, politicians hope when they come to an election cycle that uh, no one will discover their credit card statements, and as everyone pours over everything, that they would be deemed righteous or acceptable by the electorate. We all draw beards. Now, I guess the deeper question is: It even possible that we manipulate our own sinfulness, that is, our own desire to go our own way, not God's way? Is it even possible that we manipulate our own sinfulness into socially acceptable behaviours? 
in order to be deemed righteous or acceptable. See, see why it's such a, a, a base note? You know, maliciousness, in, it, it, maliciousness here. That's not a sin in the corporate world. That's called having a competitive advantage, right? Sexual, sexual immorality is not sin these days. It's an expression of our freedom. Greed is not a sin these days. We're just being entrepreneurial. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's, it's the base note that reverberates through all of our lives. And here's the base note of what I'm talking about. The, the base note of this passage, the base note of your life and my life, we're always asking fundamentally, am I okay? Am I okay enough to get the job? Am I okay enough to be in the relationship? And more importantly, am I okay before God? Whether you're religious or not, everyone's asking that question at some point in their life. Now, what does this talk about righteousness got to do with God's new thing? Here's the thing. Where you get your acceptance and how you get your acceptance could be the difference between a lifetime of either guilt or bitterness or a lifetime of joy. I mean, have you ever shot your mouth off to a friend or a partner? In fact, knowing how my church days used to go, uh, coming here to church, it could have been this morning. On the way in, in the car, you shot your mouth off and how do you react to that? You see, on one person, on one hand, one person might say, oh my goodness, I must never do that again. You know, bad Sam, I must stop shooting my mouth off. And there's, there's, always, there's always guilt and there's always disappointment. And here's the thing, there's always a diary note. I just remind myself next time not to shoot my mouth off. And how many, how many times has that worked <laughs> in the heat of the moment? And then there's the other person, though, on the other hand, that has the possibility that they do shoot their mouth off and they do hurt someone and they say, thank you, Lord. Thank you because you've just shown me that my feet are too big for my body, <laughs> that I'm a dorky teenager, that I'm growing into the potential for Christ-likeness and you've shown me the, the, the gap uh, between who I am and what I can be. Thank you. And so why is that? You see, if your acceptance is based on your external behavior, there'll always be this base note of anxiety in your life. But if your acceptance is based on something outside of yourself and deeper, there's, there could be joy for you today. Now, what do you mean? Look, there are two ways to shape metal. There's the painful way and then there's the easy way to shape metal, a metal bar. Two ways to do it. You can either try and bend it, do that on your knee and it's going to hurt. Or you can belt it. And with the right power and the right resources and the right approach, you can melt a bar of metal and it's like putty in your hands. You just pour it out into whatever shape you want it to be. And so when we read this passage this morning, verse 8, rid yourself of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. There are two ways that you can go about this this morning. You can treat this like a metal bar that you're going to bend over your knee or with your life you can take the very heart of your life, your heart, and you can have it melted. <laughs> That's the other approach. Which, which way would you be interested in this morning? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm, I'm guessing it could be the latter. So that's where we're, we're, we're going to go now. How do you melt the human heart? And the way it's done is through the dynamic of Christian growth, which is the, the two-stroke engine of repentance and rejoicing. Repentance and rejoicing. Repentance and rejoicing. Repentance, rejoice, repent, rejoice. Now, repentance is misunderstood. I always grew up in the church thinking that repentance meant a 180-degree turn from where you are. Has anyone ever heard that definition? That's, that's how I always grew up. Repentance was a 180-degree turn from where you are. And so, in other words, repentance for me was always, oh, Lord, I'm sorry for where I've stuffed it up. 
I'm sorry for this external behavior. I'm sorry for the thing that I've done. I'm going to try now and do the opposite of that behavior. And I'll go and try to do that. And look, just trying to bend the bar. Martin Luther, in, in his 95 thesis, which uh, kicked off the Protestant Reformation, which is a branch of Christianity that we're a part of, when he nailed that to the wall, one of the lines in his 95 thesis was that repentance is all of life. All of life. So that is that repentance is just not repentance for uh, our bad deeds, but repentance of our good deeds as well, that is the drawing of the beard onto our faces. The things that we do to try and get acceptance from God. And so it, it's not the 180 degree turnaround. In fact, the Bible says repentance. The Greek word is metanoiete, which means to think about your thinking. To think about your thinking, to think about your life strategy. That's what repentance means. It's not to manage your behavior. And so more practically, what is re- repentance this morning? Biblical repentance is to identify and dismantle the idols of your heart. We're going to get to what that means, but it means to identify and dismantle the idols of your heart. Uh, what does that mean? Verse 5. Let's have a look at verse 5 here. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 5. Now, we need to discern what this means here because it says put to death. Put to death means uh, to kill off. Uh, but to kill off what? Is it to kill off the sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed? Is it to kill that off? No, that's bending the bar over your knee again. Uh, to, to kill off means to re- repent. You see, the true repentance, repentance is not to kill off the behaviours, but it's to, it's to look at the behaviours, to look at the externalities and ask yourself what is causing these things. So the key to killing off is actually the middle. It's right in the middle of the the verse of verse 5, if you're reading along with me. It's right in the middle. There are two words in there. The first one is evil desires, which sticks out. (laughs) Kill off the evil desires. Now, the word underneath that is uh, epithumia. Uh, Epithumia, which which actually means uh, it's not just desire, but it's an epi-desire. It's inordinate desire. It's an over-desire. It's a mega-desire, right? When you have an earthquake, you have what? The epicenter. Where's the epicenter? The epicenter is the point above the deep-rooted earthquake that's a kilometre underground. Are you with me? So what, what Paul is saying here in, in, in get rid of these, these uh, epithumia, these evil desires, uh, is, is really get rid of the, the, the desires which are being caused by something else underneath. That's what the Greek uh, prefix epi means. It's, it means it over, the over desires, mega desires. So it's saying there's a desire here, but there's something else underneath the desire. And that's where that second word comes in, which is idolatry. And we can misunderstand this as well, because if we look at the grammar again in verse 5, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, it's really important. In my Bible, there's a comma there. And so it's not saying, and greed, no comma, which is idolatry. You see, we can read it when we read it out loud. It sounds like, get rid of all these things, and greed, which is idolatry. And we think it's only greed that is idolatry. And yet when you look at all the great passages and you look at the word epithumia, it pops up in 1 John and James chapter 1 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4. When you see epithumia come up, it's always in the context of these, all the other desires 
of the world. And so what we're getting at here is it, it means that everything that we're talking about here is idolatry. Now, what is an idol? Uh, Ex- Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, uh, interesting, Luther says you can't keep the other nine commandments until you first keep the first commandment. Uh, an idol, an idol, let me get a bit more realistic, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan said, um, you might like to sing, you might like to dance, you might be a king or the ambassador to France, but you're going to serve somebody. Oh yeah, you're going to serve somebody. You see, that an, an idol, an idol in that sense is the great theme of the Bible, that whether you're religious or not this morning, the Bible says we all worship someone or something. Whether it be money, whether it be your career, whether it be your house, whether it be your bank balance, whether it be your kids, whether it be a, a cause, the fragility of the human heart means that there is always a tendency for these things underneath the epicenter of our lives to clamor for ascendancy of our affections. They clamor for the ascendancy of our affections, to be that one place, the one thing that we love. In other words, we love to love things. And that's what an idol is, a love of someone or something more than God. Now, uh, are we all together now? We're going to piece this together. We're going to, we've done all the homework class, so let's, let's piece this in together. Let's get practical. Um, how do I know that I've got an, un, an idol underneath the epi desires of my life? You know, an idol is that one thing in your life that if you don't have it, you feel like you've got no life at all. That's how you know that you've got an idol. If I can't have this thing, then life's not worth living. And so let's put it all together to identify and dismantle the idols of the heart. Here's what repentance looks like practically. Each day you ask yourself, firstly, what mega desires are emerging in my life? What things am I over-desiring? What things am I putting above and beyond my desire for God? But more importantly, uh, un- underneath that, you're saying, well, how do I know what a mega desire is? You know, the other question is, what mega emotions are emerging in my life? What makes me inordinately or irrationally angry? You know, if a good thing is blocked and you can't get to it, you get angry. And Jesus got angry when a good thing was blocked. And he cast everyone out of the temple. If a good thing is blocked, uh, you know, you're saying, what makes me inordinately or irrationally enraged? You know, if a good thing is blocked, we become enraged. You know, if... If I become inordinately malicious in my dealings with life, you know, what good thing is being blocked that makes me malicious? Now, the question underneath that is, has that good thing, is it of God? And more importantly, has it become an ultimate thing? You with me? Have you, have you ever been to that place? I, I know in my own life, I, I have. And, and that is what, repentance is all about are we doing okay here because i recognize it's we can feel a bit somber but we're on the downstroke it's okay we're only halfway through or three quarters of three we're on the downstroke remember it's a two-stroke engine and so it's important that we are somber and we are real with ourselves on the downstroke but get ready, we're going for the upstroke so we are heading out of here for a positive Anzac day Oh, it is. <laughs> Look at that. That's a positive Australia Day. Uh, rejoicing. How do you rejoice? How do you rejoice uh, biblically? Did you ever notice uh, we didn't read it uh, because it, it uh, happened right before verse 8, but there's a therefore 
in the passage. And remember, whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? And that's because Paul gives us uh, the fuel. Remember, it's a two-stroke engine. So both uh, the fuel and the oil and the whole mix is thrust into the piston at once. The fuel for it all is all thrown in. And Paul gives that in verse 1 to 4 of the passage, which we didn't read from. But I think you just got to read this stuff this week. It's such a good chapter of Scripture. Verse 1 to 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You know what I love about about the Bible? You know what I love about Paul's writing? Paul never tells you what to do unless he's first told you who you are. You go and look through all of his writings. Paul will never tell you what to do. Isn't that how the world thinks that we treat the Bible? Uh, the, the, the Bible's always telling us what to do. Paul is always saying, since then, because of this, in light of this, think about this, it, get a sense of who you are, then you do these things. And so Paul always tells you who, who you are before he tells you what to do. So who are you? Here's, here's the dynamic. Here's the upstroke. How do we rejoice? First thing is to set your mind on the things above. It means to think it out, to think rationally. You know what it also means for me? Setting your mind means uh, you get his beard. Setting your mind on the things above means you get his beard. You too, ladies. Setting your mind on the things above for us this morning means when you eventually stand before the ultimate bouncer at the ultimate jazz club, and yes, they will be playing jazz in heaven. When you stand before the ultimate bouncer, Bouncer in the ultimate jazz club, he looks at you and he says without hesitation, nice beard. That's, that's, the, that's the real deal. And you know why it's a nice beard? Because it's not my beard. I can't grow facial hair to save my life. It's, it's, it's not because it's not I've done it myself. It's because it's his beard. It's Christ's beard. And as a side note, haven't you seen all the Jesus movie? If all the Jesus movie is, if, if there isn't one man in the world that has the, the best and the bushiest looking beard in the world, it's Jesus Christ. And, and the ultimate bouncer looks at you and, it, and he says, nice beard. Because why? Because your life is hid with Christ in God. That is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, there becomes such a transformation of yourself that when God looks at you, your life is so mixed up spiritually in that sense, in the soul sense with the life of Jesus Christ, that God thinks that he is looking at his very own son. That's what it means to set your mind on the things above. Most importantly, you don't only get, get the beard, the transformational aspect, but you, you, you get there to the ultimate bouncer and you pull out your wallet and he says, can I have your ID? And you give it to the bouncer. And before you give it to him, you look at it and you go, this has changed doesn't say Sam Haddon anymore, it says Jesus Christ. That's because when you get before the ultimate bouncer, the truth of the gospel is his identity becomes your identity. And your life becomes his life. Doesn't 2 Corinthians 5.21 said that he who had no sin became sin that so that we could become the righteousness, so that we could become retranslated class, the accepted before God. 
His life now becomes your life. That's what Paul is saying in the spiritual realm. You've got to think this stuff through. Set your mind on the things above is to constantly focus on your legal and transformational acceptance by God. Get your chops around that daily, says Paul. Think about that constantly. The God's new thing is he has wrapped your life up in Jesus so much you look like his very own son. And so what that means for you this morning, it means in the name of Jesus, put the eyeliner down. That's what it means. It means stop drawing beards. Stop working for your own acceptance. If this is true, in light of this, Paul says, for heaven's sake, put the eyeliner down. You've been accepted. You have the beard. You have the ID card. Rejoice. We rejoice in that as Christians. Secondly, it means to set your heart on the things above. What what does that mean? It means, uh, I'll put it out there and then we'll get to what it means. It means to find and it means to find the expulsive power of a new affection. An expulsive power of a new affection. Have you ever seen all those great old movies and great old stories and adventure movies and adventure stories? You know, what have they all got in common? They, they, tend to, they tend to go in a similar way. The first thing is the heroes are always ordinary people, right? They're ordinary people that are living ordinary lives and it's a safe life and it's a good life. And then something comes in and whisks them away to a new dimension and a new time and a new planet. And they go from this ordinary place to this other place that is larger than life. It's, it's incredible. It's mind-boggling. But in this place, uh, there's no shades of grey there's no greyness. It's always black and white. It's always battles of, of good and evil. It's always black and white. And they have to decide which side they're going to be on. And on one hand, they meet incredibly wonderful kings and queens and princesses. And on the other hand, they meet the most horrible uh, aliens and monsters and ogres and the, the, just the essence of evil. And always in these stories, right, they, they always despite the odds, despite everything that's going on, despite the towers of evil and the great battles and the great conflicts, despite all that, victory is always snatched out of the jaws of the evil one at the very last minute, right? (laughs) And then when these ordinary people come back to their everyday life and their ordinary land again, their ordinary planet, their ordinary dimension, there's something different about them now, right? They live life larger, and they think differently and they, they walk differently and their shoulders are back and, and it's because they've been somewhere and they are someone and they've had these great adventures and their life is bigger and they, they move about with a freedom and a power. Why is that? Because they're always remembering. They're always setting their hearts and their minds on that old life, that other beyond world, that everyday world. In, in other words, they come back to this ordinary world and nothing phases them. They cut through problems like a hot knife through butter because they, they, they've been to the ultimate world where, they, where they've seen the ultimate battles and the ultimate conflicts and they've seen the ultimate disease being conquered and so they come back to the illnesses of this life and go, hmm, I've seen the big stuff. They've seen the ultimate battles and the ultimate conflicts and they come back to the small, petty office room antics of everyday life and they say, oh, we've got victory in the big battle. This is nothing. They come, they come back. Nothing phases them because this is where their reality comes from. Now, what do you think I'm going on about? Paul says this is how Christians ought to be. 
Set your heart, set your mind on the things above. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Christians should live now as if they've gone to heaven, died and come back. We're dual citizens. Christians are people living here in this ordinary world, but we've got this mind that sees these great things. They're people by faith who to some degree have had their imaginations captured. And to the degree that you have your imagination captured by the one who is beautiful beyond being and the one who is the great hero and the one that went in and sacrificed himself for you, I mean, that's what, that's what all the great war movies are about, right? You know what the, the classic war movie byline is, is that Timmy and Johnny come from an old country town somewhere in middle America and they go off to fight in the Second World War and they're the best of friends and they've been friends all of their life and you go through all of their adventures, but it always comes down to this one ultimate battle. And they are pegged in, they're pegged in against the corner of uh, some shot out sandstone building in Europe and there's no escape from all of this. And, and, and Timmy says, I'm going to make a run for it. And he's about to go around the corner and, and, and the enemy is, is pushing in. And at the last minute as Timmy rounds the corner, Johnny pulls him back by the belt. And he runs ahead of him and he cops three bullets into the chest. And there's always that scene, isn't there, where you know, the, the best friend is there, is there lying down in his arms and he's bleeding to death and the photo of the wife comes out of the pocket. And Johnny says, Timmy, look after my girl. Look after my kids. And how... How's Timmy when he gets back home? And there's always the scene at Arlington National Cemetery or somewhere in DC, and, and he's a different man. And every part of his life now is lived on that directive. Every part of his life is lived because he had a brother who sacrificed himself. He had a brother who gave up his life so he could continue to live his. And everything is driven by him setting his mind and setting his heart on that one thing. And I mean, is, isn't, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the gospel that we have the ultimate, not just friend, but brother? Who at the last minute, you know, the, the, the Bible says we know it in the depths of our souls. That at the, the time when we were around a corner and we were deserving of a bullet, Jesus Christ grabs us by the back of the belt and he walks up the hill and to the cross and he cops three in the chest. And he says, do this for me. And everything for the Christian is lived upon that directive. No greater love than this. Has anyone than to lay down their life for their brother or their sister? He did it. He modelled it. It's the great. It's this great story. It's a story under. Every, why do you think we love watching? Why are we moved by those movies? Because it's a story under every story. It's the gospel. And when we feel that, you know what's happening. <laughs> if 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 our problem is the over-desire of the good things, of the earthly things which have become ultimate things, then as Thomas Chalmers puts it, you need the expulsive power of a new affection. You need to set your heart on him. Rejoicing means to have your heart melted. Are you feeling that this morning? To have your heart melted. To meditate on what Jesus Christ has done for you and because of Jesus, I'm not only forgiven for my bad record, but I'm accepted into the club on the basis of his record, I'm accepted, so I need not patch up my own righteousness. And you begin to adore him. There's gratitude, there's thanks, there's adoration, there's desire. Don't try and change your heart this morning by bending your external behaviours this year. You'll break it. 
Instead, you need to melt it with the right power and the right approach that's available to you through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by starting the two-stroke engine of repentance and rejoicing and repentance and rejoicing and repentance and rejoicing. As verse 10 says, you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Let's pray.